Welcome to the Managing Violence Podcast, where we talk all things self-defense, violence prevention, and aggression management. My name is Joe Saunders. I'm your host. Let's go. Good afternoon slash morning slash evening, wherever you are. Welcome to another episode of the Managing Violence Podcast. Joe Saunders here with you, and uh, we have another returning guest this week. One of my favorites, a guy I always enjoy bantering with, Mr. Gershon Ben Karen. Gershon is a Krav Maga instructor, a, uh, also a profound academic uh, and author, has a master's degrees in psychology, has a working on another master's degree in criminal forensic psychology. Uh, really, really interesting guy, very well spoken, uh, has walked the talk and also studied the talk and been there, done that when it comes to pretty much anything in violence management. So definitely a guy worth listening to. Uh, we are talking this week about workplace violence, in particular type 2 workplace violence, which is customer-initiated or customer-on-staff aggression and violence. So that's the topic for this week. If that's your bag, you're going to enjoy this conversation. Also, if you're a uh, regular follower of the podcast, you'll notice that this is episode 9 of season 2. Season 1 was 10 episodes. Season 2 will also be 10 episodes. That means this is the second last episode of the season. Don't be too sad. We are going out with a bang. Next week, we have the one and only Tony Blower, one of the real founding fathers of uh, reality-based self-defense. One of the first guys to really incorporate behavioral, emotional, and psychological aspects into self-defense training. And uh, I've just recorded the podcast with Tony and it is a ripper. Uh, it's up there with Matt, the Matt Larson episode from season one is possibly one of my favorites. Uh, and also along with this episode, I really enjoyed listening back to this one with Gershon as I've done the edit today. So uh, yeah, season two, episode 10 next week will be Tony Blower. Make sure you don't miss that. Uh, season three won't be far away. We're not going to be taking a big break. Uh, I've got interviews already scheduled for season three. Uh, So that won't be too far away. I will have an announcement for the exact date that season three, episode one will be out. And uh, I'll hopefully be able to announce that in time for next week's show. And uh, during the break, I intend to upload a bunch of content to YouTube. So make sure you follow our YouTube channel uh, if you want to get announcements and updates regarding the show. And of course, don't forget, we are now on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash managing violence. If you'd like to chip in, help us continue to improve the show, better guests, no ads, better sound quality, all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, a lot of it costs money. And uh, at the moment, this show doesn't make any money. So if you'd like to be part of fixing that and uh, making sure I can continue pushing on with this at the expense of my paid employment, then uh, please head over to patreon.com slash managing violence. Also, uh, please check out our social medias. We are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn. We're on pretty much all of them, either as Managing Violence or Joe Saunders. Uh, check me out. Feel free to add me. I'm always happy to interact and uh, and uh, hang out. All right. Uh, oh, last thing before I jump into the episode. We are doing a big push on reviews at the moment. If you could go to iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star review with a few words, screenshot it, send it to joe at joesaunders.com.au and I will reward you with a PDF of my first Bouncer Stories mini book, uh, which is about to be rewritten, but I will send you the first version free in your inbox. All you've got to do is write a five-star review and send me the screenshot to my email. That's it. 
Now that that's out of the way, let's jump straight into my interview with Gershon Benkeren. All right, Gershon, thanks for joining me back on the podcast, mate. It's been a, it's been a great pleasure to, to have you a second time. Uh, the first episode was very well received and, uh, and, and probably one of the, the first episodes that really took off. So uh, I'm very happy sure. to have you back again. And uh, let's, let's have a bit of a chat. But um, first things first, for those that haven't, haven't heard, listened to the first episode or maybe don't know about you, can you give us sort of a, a two-minute blurb of, of who you are and what you do and what, what your journeys look like to get to you to where you are? Uh, okay, so I'll sort of start where I am now. Um, I run a Kramagar studio in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, it's a 16,000 square foot training facility. Uh, we train civilians, law enforcement, military personnel. Um, that's one side of my business. The other is in terms of consultancy and training uh, to corporate clients. Uh, so that involves um, a lot of healthcare because Boston's a big uh, hospital city. Um, also, uh, in the finance sector, so risk management, management mitigation, uh, and all sorts of training from uh, front of house staff to security uh, individuals in terms of conflict resolution, de-escalation, uh, and all those good things. Right, awesome. So, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. And uh, and just for those that that might be more academically minded, do you just want to run through quickly your your academic qualifications as well? Yeah, um, I've always been involved in the research arena. Uh, I have a master's degree in psychology, and I'm just at the moment finishing up with a thesis uh, for my criminology and uh, criminal psychology masters. So one of the things that I've always tried to do is stay abreast of the academic findings uh, within the security industry uh, and its sort of related areas such as you know violence and aggression, uh, and bring that academic learning and theory uh, into the sort of practical world. Yeah, awesome, awesome. All right, well, that, that's a uh, that that is there's a good snapshot. Also, throw in that the Gershon's a prolific author. He's written a number of books on Krav Maga, and they're they're certainly worth checking out because um, it's not your typical paint by numbers or instructional Krav Maga books. They, to me, I mean, the the techniques are beautiful, and the the photographers, the photography rather is uh, is exceptional because it's um, it's all taken place uh, in real environments rather than in a sterile studio setting, which is which is really cool, um, but. To me, the, the things I really loved about those books was the the writing around it uh, and the the topics that were discussed around it, which was, uh, I think, is the the missing part in a lot of martial arts and and self defense books is the the context. So um, I highly recommend you check out Gershon's books, uh, and uh, and also he's also got a ton of practical experience as well from from working the doors and uh, and for uh, yeah being being hands on. Probably a few too many times over the years, as yeah, most of us <laughs> can attest to. <laughs> yes. So, uh, right. So the, the topic that uh, we sort of flagged, oh gee, it was maybe a month or more ago when when we first started talking about uh, about doing another show uh, was workplace violence. Uh, it's something that uh, is a particular interest for me at the moment. Well, it has been for many years, but uh, at the moment we're in the middle of actually writing up. Uh, a academic research project um oh, yeah so so that's uh <laughs> that was my idea and it somehow become all my job which uh, was not my intention when i pitched the idea to gav uh but uh <laughs> my, it, it my was intention with... was the guy with the phd would do the work and unfortunately right. i was a little bit naive about how that would happen oh no no but, no uh, at the top they'll tell you what to do yeah yeah pretty much uh so he'll have a laugh when he hears that but um we we're in the mo in the process of um 
doing a research project to identify uh, the context of workplace violence in Australia and um, and establishing right. a best practice model for the management of that and how that relates to duty of care, etc. So it's been, it's been a topic that has been, um, yeah, it's been, it's been sort of front of mind for me for a little while. And I know you've done some work in that space. So I thought we maybe we could explore it. Uh, and uh, and also the context is a little bit different with the US, uh, yep. being that you're, you know, you're, you're transplanted, but now based in the US and workplace violence does have different connotations in America than what it does uh, in other parts of the world. But, uh, and a uh, lot of similarities as well. Um, for sure, for sure. You, you know, it's one of the things when you first <laughs> said, let's have a look at workplace violence, I was like, wow, you know, it, it's such a broad landscape, you know, um, mm. from troubled employees and, and workplace bullying uh, right through to things that people don't often think about, such as uh, people crossing picket lines to get to work during a general strike of some nature. So it's one of those areas which is, you know, potentially uh, massive. Um, and so I was always like, you know, when we had this sort of conversation a few days ago about what area should we be looking at? Um, because obviously we can go right down into the active shooter, the active killer uh, realm. Um, right through to Ted Kodinsky kind of Unabomber scenarios, all of that falls under workplace violence. Um, so obviously yeah, it's a very, absolutely. you know, huge, uh, a huge domain to look at. Yeah, it, it sure is. And I, I think probably to um, to establish a context up front for anyone who might be clicking on this episode because they see workplace violence, our, uh, our, our focus for this particular chat is going to at least start off with... Uh, with what was referred to as, as type two uh, yeah. workplace violence being customer aggression. So yeah. if you're after an episode about active shooter training or uh, hostile employees or uh, um, HR practices for not hiring yeah. sociopaths or anything like that, uh, we, we might cover that in the future. It may come up a little bit organically, but this is going to focus primarily on uh, customer uh, initiated aggression uh towards towards uh, employees so uh, i just want to establish that context early so no one's disappointed waiting for something that we may not get to uh, that said I, i'd still given given recent events uh, it would still be good to touch on the uh, the active shooter threat as well um I, to... I think it may come up like naturally as you say yeah yeah and i, and I think uh, it, it's important that uh, we establish that you know, workplace violence and even customer initiated violence or customer on on staff violence um, it can be a full spectrum it can be everything from uh aggressive comments it can be yes. threats it can be telephone threats it, it can be um even just uh bullying in, ter in terms of making complaints about particular staff yes. members to try and try and affect their employment uh and it couldn't go all the right and the way up to physical violence and and as we said active shooters and uh and and mass casualties so I think there's a there's principles we need to address uh, need to uh, sorry cover off on, but uh, yeah. I think I think there's there's plenty of spectrum still even even within that one subset oh, yes. of workplace violence. Definitely. So, so right, uh, let, let's just start off. Uh, what what are sort of the things that you think about uh, when you're you get a job as a consultant in the workplace violence sector? They've got an issue with with customer aggression. Uh, what's some of the general advice or general things you start to look for? Um. Well, one of the areas that we sort of work in here in Boston is in the healthcare sector, uh, which certainly in the US is one of the uh, sort of big uh, industries for customer facing uh, violence. Um, so I think there was a 2014 
report that stated that 94% of all aggravated assaults uh, by type 2 were committed in the healthcare industry. Um, so, so part of what you're looking at is the, the industry uh, context. So who are, who are the company's clients going to be? Um, because obviously uh, a patient or a relative of a patient is going to have uh, different concerns to, uh, let's say, shop staff uh, who are dealing with customers who are returning faulty goods. So the first thing I'm always looking at is who, who are the clients, who are the customers? Um, so defining the context uh, right out of the box. So like I say, you know, um, a relative of a patient, let's say it's their mother whose treatment isn't going to go, isn't going so well, is going to have a different type of aggression and a potential for violence than somebody returning a faulty piece of electronics uh, to a shop after Christmas. So um, there's, there's that. Um, and also just mentioning that, uh, also the time, because uh, in different industries, different uh, times of year uh, have different threat levels. So, for example, um, if you look at the US, where we have uh, after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, you know, one of the dangers there is like mobs of uh, highly motivated customers looking for bargains. Uh, and you'll often see news reports of kind of the Walmart doors being smashed open, you know, as a heavy mob like pushes up against them. Um, so part of yeah, it, it's, well it's is crazy, the, isn't it? That it, it is. So just just to interrupt you, yeah. you think about at what time in human history have we had mass outbreaks of violence based on commercial interest? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like what an unusual situation we've actually created for for ourselves. We've actually <laughs> yeah, yes. through through offering discounts and bargains. We've actually created the possibility of mass casualties. It, it, it is quite. I, I mean, it, it's one of those things that I shake my head, I laugh at, and get depressed at all at the same time. Um, but I, I mean, it, it really is a, a very serious time of year from a safety perspective. If you're an employee um, in in one of those uh, establishments who might be called upon between two kind of uh, parties. To decide who is a rightful owner, you know, of a, a twenty-dollar pair of jeans that both parties are holding on to, um, and, and be that ultimate decision maker. So you know, there's some. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting risk. That yeah, you're you're a seventeen-year-old store clerk who's going to be uh, potentially putting their life on the line if they choose the wrong person. It's a that's yeah. actually something I've never even considered in that context. Yeah, it's funny, Black Friday here has a different risk because uh, in a general risk management point of view, you actually end up with employees that take the day off work so they can spend the whole day online shopping right. and taking advantage of US retailers. So, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Although uh, there's more and more Australian businesses that have actually started doing Black Friday sales to match the US, even though it has the date has absolutely zero relevance to our uh, <laughs> to our tax cycle or anything else. It's just sort of yeah. they pick the date and go, well, if if it's a thing, if 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 people are shopping online, they might shop in stores. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a global it's economy, just... you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's I, I think the two things I first look at is uh, the context and the client base, and then looking really at the life cycle. Um, so is there a, a seasonality to the industry, or or is it kind of flat? Uh, and there are different times of year again where. Um, you know, in the hospitals where there's uh, a lot of, uh, uh, how do you put it, over demand 
is times, for example, in Boston when it snows uh, and gets icy. So that tends to be a time when emergency rooms start to fill up. Uh, certain holidays like July the 4th, over drinking, emergency rooms start to fill up. So you, you can sort of sometimes in certain industries see a calendar when there's high risk times uh, and what might be the particular risks in those times. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's really important to understand as well. Um, is even even something as simple as uh, during a heat wave, you typically get more violence. Uh, yes. People are typically yeah more angsty, uh, and especially if you are in a public gathering uh, location. Let, let's say you're you you're in a shopping center. Uh, at, at least here, and I assume it's the same in the US as well. Where when there's a heat wave, people flock to places that have mass AC. <laughs> so right. you, you're going to end up with more people in shopping centers, more people at uh, public recreation venues, um, more people going to cinemas, things like that. So it's and, uh, and, and the AC is an interesting one because if you think about the um, from a sort of social demographic point of view, the people who are likely to be having AC in their home. Um, middle-class uh, families, individuals earning a decent wage. And the people, and again, I'm not trying to be classist here in any way, um, but those individuals on lower incomes, um, and I'm not saying everybody on a low income is obviously a criminal, but lower income classes tend to hold criminal classes amongst them. You're bringing those people who don't have an AC out into the public where they do. So you can end up with a disproportionate uh, number of criminals within a location such as a shopping mall. I yeah, that really good point. Too much like I'm making a sort of like, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, poor people, we shouldn't be allowing them out during the heat wave. Um, but yeah. there is that tendency, <laughs> um, you know, where you have sort of lower socioeconomic criminal classes moving uh, into those areas at those times. Uh, and also changing often their um, behavioral patterns around that when they are active, which tends to be later at night when it's cooler uh, and those type of things. So uh, again, you know, just looking at heatwave and the types of um, businesses that might be affected, you might suddenly have a lot more people out um, at later night type establishments when it's a little bit cooler, which is then going to put uh, increased demand upon the services uh, and products that they offer. So, you know, the line waiting for, you know, fast food might now be twice as long as it was before. So so those are the type of things. I mean, they're, they're kind of very specific things, but just as we're talking about heat waves, how that can affect uh, businesses. Yeah, and just one last point on that. I mean, I don't want to make a podcast about heat waves, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> many years ago, I, I was uh, managing the security for a shopping center and it was uh, it was quite an old shopping center that had uh, yeah kind of ancient infrastructure. Uh, <laughs> it just really really had never had the budget for the the refurb it desperately required. And uh, what it was also in a very low socioeconomic area. Um, I used to refer to it as an open air prison uh, because yep. it, the uh, there was two major prisons uh, really really close by to the shopping center, and most of the people that lived in that particular area. Um, well, I won't say most, but a large percentage of the people that lived in yeah. that particular area were there because a relative was in jail. And right. uh, it was it was a convenient place to live and still be able to visit them. Uh, so, yeah, great place right. to great place to work. I, at a context, the first three weeks that I was there, 
I made more uh, emergency phone calls, triple O phone calls for Australia, the 911 equivalent. I, I made more emergency phone calls in those, that three weeks than I had in 15 years of security prior. It was, uh, <laughs> it was incredible, the amount of violence and, and overdoses and so on that we had in that particular shopping centre. Um, but uh, the one of the worst particular uh, weekends I remember was the weekend our AC died. And, that, and all of a sudden, everybody's in there and they're overheating and yep. just everybody's at each other's throats. Uh, and it's, it's funny, it's like people didn't realize or didn't, uh, didn't occur to them to just go home. They just stayed at the shopping center and bitched <laughs> and moaned about how hot it was. So, um, we're creatures yeah. of habit. Really interesting, huh? It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, obviously, the context is super important. Uh, healthcare is, is a very unique animal in that regard. Uh, it's, I often say that no one's in an emergency department at, department at 3 a.m. having a good time. No. Uh, and, and even just from a phone-based point of view, if you're having to call a relative saying, hey, you're, uh, you know, your relative is in the hospital, no, no one's arriving in a good headspace by the time they get there. No. It, it's, uh, they're already stressed. They're already on edge. And one thing that I like to look at in that space too is, is it's not just the client or it's not just the customer who is on edge, it's the staff member, especially in healthcare. Oh, Here, I mean, if you're if you're a nurse pulling a double shift and you're 14 hours deep into your shift uh, and you're fatigued and you're hungry and you've already been you've already been dealing with difficult clients for the past uh, however many hours, uh, you're probably not responding to that heightened level of agitation very well yourself. So uh, there's so many different risk factors. And, and I think that's where you touch on an organizational uh, point there. Um, does it have to be the person who might have been dealing, you know, 14 hours with injured people who needed care, actually being the interface with the um, relatives? You know, would it be better to have somebody who's, you know, permanently refreshed and whose sole job is to be that interface dealing with uh, communicating a patient's needs to those who came in with them rather than the person who during that conversation may be wanting to get back to actually treat them. Um, so I think sometimes organizations can uh, sort of combine roles inadvertently. I'm not saying it, it, it should definitely not be the nurse or the doctor who's treating the person communicating with the um, uh, relatives, but it might be better if there's somebody who's uh, better trained possibly in that communications regard and who can manage and be that one kind of port of call. Because uh, I know when, you know, I've taken people in to emergency rooms before and often you're ending up getting passed from one doctor to another doctor to another as that person goes through the process. So sometimes having that central hub of communication can be one way to avoid some of those issues. Yeah, I think one one of the models that I I tend to recommend in this space is is having a triage system and, and even taking it outside of healthcare, which obviously you know, triage means a certain thing. Yeah. Uh, but having having a particular staff member who whose job is to essentially greet and identify what particular needs that person has, yeah. whether that be emotional needs, physical needs, whatever. Uh, but having essentially a screener who can then flag for whoever is going to be offering the service or the treatment that they've come into the business for. Um, look, just to give you a heads up, they're a bit agitated, uh, possibly yeah. intoxicated, exhibiting yeah, these signs of mental illness, whatever it might be. 
but at least then the treatment team or the, the service team that's going to be receiving that client has a heads up and they can mentally prepare to be uh, a little bit more aware or or they can be a little bit more um, tolerant or whatever whatever situation right. might it might be but but to your point having a triage person whose job is just to read the situation not take it on board not deal with it just kind of read it take some yep. notes and then pass it on uh, and then be a central point of contact without actually being the uh, yeah the face of the problem as such yeah. uh, i think it's sometimes uh, very useful and i recommend that in service environments as well uh, where you have someone who's just screening your line and having conversations and then saying, look, yeah, FYI, when this person gets to the counter, um, just be aware of, uh, of this particular behavior or this particular mindset. And I, I think that's one of the things, again, with a lot of people when they're performing a job, they're uh, certainly initially experience might give them another sort of viewpoint on it, but certainly initially they're trying to do the job. Um, and if that job is trying to save a patient's life, that's what they'll be trying to do. Everything else around it is kind of secondary to them, as it should be. Um, but the problem then is when that person is called out to fulfill another kind of responsibility, which is com to compassionately communicate uh, what's happening. And you might be uh, fantastic at one part of the job, but not actually a skilled communicator. So sometimes, you know, like you say, somebody who's working a 14-hour shift may come across as a bit abrupt. Um, and so it's making that decision, do I want all of my staff to be well-rounded or am I going to recognise that some people aren't actually natural communicators and that kind of role and responsibility should be passed on to somebody else? Yeah, actually, um, uh, my, my wife got really into... Um, it's a US show, The Good Doctor, I think it was, with the, the autistic doctor. Uh, really interesting TV show. But, uh, yeah, basically, uh, it, it illustrates just that point. You had a, yeah, a central character who uh, was a brilliant problem solver and, and, and brilliant doctor, uh, but just lacked social skills. And uh, the, the whole, uh, I guess, the whole, the whole tension <laughs> of, the, of, of the show is, uh, is his inability to communicate, even though he's brilliant. So uh, yeah, yeah I, <laughs> it's it's a compelling watch if if anyone's interested in in doing that. Uh, so just uh, just moving on from that point, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about verbal aggression. Taking it taking it out of healthcare because healthcare is yeah. is fairly unique uh, for retail or service based environments where um, you have staff that are let's say that they're not professionals in that they're they're not yeah, degree qualified or they're not. Um, they're working in a, in a, a front-facing service yep. role uh, where they possibly haven't had a lot of training in how to actually do that job. I mean, most look, what's the, what's the training for most retail positions? Maybe maybe a day in class and then a, right. then a week the week being shadowed and then you're on your own. So yep. they certainly haven't had advanced customer aggression training. They certainly haven't had verbal de-escalation training. They yep. certainly haven't had. Um, self-defense training and then they're put into an environment where they might be dealing with people that are agitated and angry so if you're let's just take retail as an as an example just yeah. to keep it sort of um yeah focused what sort of training or what sort of uh, services would you sort of be looking at to try and help a, a retail organization prepare their staff given that their staff are, are quite often transient they're not going to hang around for more than six months or 12 months or whatever uh and training budgets may be limited um, we teach a, a very short 60-minute uh, de-escalation and conflict resolution 
uh, seminar really for that purpose that you're not going to want to put somebody through a whole uh, day of training. Uh, and I can go into more detail on it, but basically a lot of it revol um, revolves around asking open ended questions. So saying things like, uh, what can I do to sort this out? So uh, letting that person, that individual who might have some complaint or be aggressive, start to actually think about various alternatives which might be uh, open to them, you know, other than acting aggressively. Um, and it also gives that kind of idea of empowering the customer. It doesn't necessarily mean that the person is going to, you know, agree with everything that they do. Um, but really that use of open-ended questions. So putting it into the customer's hands of, okay, what would be the resolution for you? Because that way you can actually find out what the person is trying to achieve. And that's sometimes very difficult in high stress uh, situations. And it may be that the person coming to that situation isn't quite sure what is gonna resolve the situation for them. Um, so by asking these open-ended questions, you can actually kind of get them to formulate uh, what it is that they're trying to have as an outcome uh, of this situation and this interaction. Uh, it's a bit like dealing with uh, hostage takers. People often think that when somebody takes somebody hostage, they have kind of like a plan and a defined outcome and some goals that they want. Um, and often back in the 60s when the original hostage negotiation units were being set up, that was what they were working to. Then when they went out in the field and they would ask the hostage taker, what is it that you want? The person would go, I don't know. And part of the process would be actually finding and, and trying to help that individual come up with what it was they wanted out of the situation. Um, so we kind of use that open-ended question uh, basis for finding out what the person wants, giving them a sense of empowerment and involvement uh, in the process. And then we have some secondary stuff that we use, should it be that what they're trying to get out of the situation is just something which isn't in the individual's power to grant or goes against company policy. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And the, the open-ended questions is, uh, I think is essential for, for establishing the, uh, I'll, I'll just say, you, you, need, you need to establish whether de-escalation is even available to you. Yes. I mean, if, someone, if someone is so agitated uh, that they're, they're so close to their crisis point that uh, they're no longer able to engage in any sort of rational conversation, then no amount of de-escalation is going to work at that point. Absolutely it, right. Your priority has to shift to safety. So, uh, and I think sometimes we get caught up, uh, especially with traditional verbal de-escalation training or the the shortcut verbal de-escalation training that's sometimes thrown out there, that people are told you always must de-escalate. And no, <laughs> some situations are so far gone, the person's arrived already pre-triggered, yes. they're right on the, the verge of exploding physically. Uh, you can't, it's it's uh it's negligent to then tell people to go and try and de-escalate that situation, especially if they're Absolutely. not especially if they're not skilled in crisis intervention. I mean, maybe someone like an Ellis Amda or or or, or you or I who who might have a, yeah, a bit of experience dealing with people at that very high end, maybe we'd be able to pull it off. But even then, you'd be very high on guard, waiting for any indication that it's about to go the other way. So and I think um, yeah, I I think that's a really important point because often de-escalation gets uh, presented as this kind of like, uh, you know, solution that can work on everybody. The, the person kind of needs to want to be de-escalated. They need to want 
to, to find a solution that doesn't involve aggression and violence. And, and some people don't want that. Some people, uh, let's say, coming into that shop, uh, let's say, to return a faulty good, have all written a, already written a script for themselves which sees them in conflict. And they're so tied up to that script that they're not even listening to what the person's saying or the alternatives that they might be offering. Um, so I, I, I really do think that you know de-escalation is something that works when the person wants to seek alternatives, that wants uh, to be de-escalated. Uh, if they don't, absolutely, you're now looking at how do I make myself safe? How do I make my staff safe? Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and I think it's on a, on a on a purely personal safety level. I mean, de-escalation has a place with social violence. So if it's something that yeah, someone someone has been upset by something you've done, or they're or they're upset yes. about a particular situation, and it's not a planned action, sure you can de-escalate uh, most yes. of the time as long as it, as long as it's not too far gone. Uh, but if I said to you, how would you de-escalate a rapist? Well, that's not no. really a thing. I mean, it, it's it's a planned course of action uh, where they've they've decided they're going to do this and this is how it's going to be done. And all you can really do is just not present as the desired target at that point. Uh, but uh, in the workplace point of view, de-escalation of someone who has already decided on a particular course of action is almost impossible because, like you said, they're yeah. not that they, they know what they're trying to get and they know what they're trying to do and the approach to get them to not do that uh, is not de-escalation. It's, yeah, there's yeah. other strategies then that you can use, but, but de-escalation is off the table. Um, but that, that question you ask, I think, is, is super important. It's, it, when I teach verbal de-escalation, I call it the golden question, which is, what can I do to make this better for you? Yeah. Uh, it, and if you can't get a rational response to that, it doesn't mean it will be a pleasant response. It doesn't mean it'll right. be logical. It doesn't mean that it will necessarily, um, yeah, be something that you'd uh, that you can honor. But if they can't give you a rational answer to that question, then at that point you're like, you know what? If you can't tell me how I can make this better, yeah. uh, then there's probably not a lot of point in having further conversation because I, I'm not going to get there. Uh, well, this, so we talked about point, yeah. We, we talk about kind of three warning signs. Uh, obviously, there are many, um, but three that we always teach is, and this is kind of the point of asking the question, because in asking the question, you get an idea where along the spectrum this individual is emotionally uh, by how they respond to it. Um, so we'll say, look, when somebody, you say, what can I do to sort this out? And you're met with silence. Yeah, that's a person who's in another place. They're not looking to be de-escalated. Um, if you're met with garbled words, so they start mixing up the uh, order of their sentences, um, that person's getting ready to uh, start to look to use aggression and violence uh, as a means of resolving this conflict. Uh, and, that, and that's where I think sometimes conflict resolution is, is a weird term, because one way to resolve a conflict is through physical force. Uh, and violence. Uh, obviously, it's not the one we mean when we talk about conflict resolution. Uh, and the other one is something we refer to as repetitive looping, where the person just keeps repeating the same injustice over and over again. So they're not really moving the conversation forward. They're just stuck in that moment uh, of repeating the complaint over and over again, uh, often escalating it in terms of the volume that they use with the complaint and also the interval between each complaint. So they're kind of one of the things we say, if you ask a question and you're getting these three responses, you really need to start looking at making yourself safe. Yeah, 100%. And I think 
actually, this is probably a, a nice little um, segue into another part of the conversation. But we tend to fixate on uh, with with customer aggression. We we tend to assume that it's always the customer's fault, uh, right. and it's it's not. I mean, people keep people come in with legitimate grievances from time to time, and they're just not handled well. Uh, yes. And I, one of the things that I sort of stress is you need to be able to read the situation and determine whether this person has a problem that can be solved, which is great. I mean, if they come in and they're actually looking for you to solve a problem. Right. Sometimes people get too fixated on the behavior uh, and they go, well, this, they're not behaving appropriately. Therefore, right. I need to address the behavior when just addressing the problem might have actually yes. fixed it. <laughs> and you, yes, you don't definitely. have to deal with this person for the next half an hour. You can actually get them out the door and they're happy and they're going to write you a positive review on Facebook. Right. You know? like that, that might be that might be achievable. Um, but we, we sometimes get fixated on the behavior rather than thinking about, okay, what's their problem and how can I resolve it? Um, or we get fixated I, on what's... This a, yeah. sorry, I was just going to say that this is one of the common ones when dealing with uh, operators who work by phone. Um, who, you know, I've worked for um, collection agencies um, and I've also trained collection agencies. And one of the things that I think sometimes gets forgotten is when a collection uh, agent rings up and says, by the way, Mr. Jones, you owe $10,000, you are going to get an emotional response and reaction. You, you, they're not going to meet it with a level-headed, oh, really, is that how much I owe? It, it's going to have an emotional response. And you sometimes see companies which have policies which turn around and say, look, as soon as a person starts to get emotional, you need to warn them and then tell them that you're going to hang up because um, you shouldn't be taught, spoken to in that way. And the problem is if you warn somebody in that state, you're probably going to make them more emotional. So I think sometimes it's understanding, like you say, that the customer might have a genuine grievance, but they might also have kind of a genuine emotional response that reflects that grievance. Uh, and so I think sometimes when there's that zero tolerance, like you've started shouting, Mr. Jones, if you keep shouting, I'm going to have to hang up on you. Uh, you know, we're actually going to escalate the situation where it might be necessary to let Mr. Jones have a bit of a rant for 30 seconds and actually get that emotion uh, out of his system. Obviously, that's a little bit different because you've got uh, a geographic separation. You know, the, the conversation's happening over the phone. Um, but I think sometimes we should recognize and expect that in response to something there is, we say or do, there may well be a genuine emotional response, which doesn't necessarily indicate that the person is heading towards violence. Yeah, and there's a difference between someone who, who wants you to solve a problem and someone who wants to be heard. Uh, yes. And I, I think that's the other part. Sometimes we get fixated on solving the problem, uh, but we are, we're not actually acknowledging the emotion. So it's, it's, yes. it's, it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes you, you get too fixated on the emotion and you don't solve the problem. Other times you get too fixated on the problem and you don't acknowledge the emotion. Uh, and, and you end up with a situation, you, you mentioned the looping before. Both yeah. parties are, are, are guilty of the looping where you end yes. up with a, a staff member who... Yeah, they're they're in their own level of you know, sympathetic nervous system activation. Right. They're, they're they're starting to panic themselves. They're starting to lose a little bit of control of their faculties, and they start looping policy back at the. Uh, yeah, yes. start to, let's let's talk about return policy just as a as a really easy example. They start just repeating the policy over and over, and the start the uh, the customer is now saying, "Well, you're not even listening to me. 
you're right. just you're just parroting something I could have read online, and they're going to get more and more <laughs> frustrated. So sometimes it is about the emotion. Sometimes it's about the problem, and it's yes. up to us to be able to diagnose that. And I think it's a lot to ask, like we're saying, somebody who undergoes one day of training and is on minimum wage to actually, you know, correctly deal with these incidents. Um, I, I always say whatever, whatever level of security you're at, it's one of the hardest jobs in the world because you're dealing with people. Um, and again, I, I think, you know, training should be given in these things um, or there should be people who are skilled in this. So, you know, again, going back to that returns policy, if you have a returns desk, it should be somebody who knows actually how to handle these people. You shouldn't be putting on the junior, you know, this is their second day and it just happens to be the day after Christmas. You know, th that would be a very inappropriate allocation of resources. Um, yet it happens so frequently, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. it does, because at that time of year, uh, people are on holiday, you're having temporary staff in uh, and all of those things. And that's why I think, again, going back to that life cycle uh, and timing of events within businesses, you know, you should really be training your Christmas staff sometime in August, you know, as opposed to, you know, the first week in December. Um, and again, a lot of times the staff don't understand and know um, what power they have in terms of, say, issuing a return, uh, which is why you see the majority of assaults by customers on employees, that it's managers and supervisors, because the individual who first started dealing with a complaint passes it up the line. Um, and the problem with that is, as the person realizes they're talking now, say, to the manager, and there's no further uh, recourse for them to go, suddenly now it becomes this very make or break moment that if they're not able to convince the manager that this return should be accepted, uh, really now they're into a letter writing stage and that ability to make that return goes. So again, you can often see those sort of crisis moments come as the junior member quickly passes it on to the manager and the person suddenly realize it, this is it. If I don't convince this person, of my complaint and don't get them to accept this return it's not going to happen yeah uh there's, there's some uh maybe maybe we can actually talk a little bit about some general advice for dealing with those sort of situations but uh one <laughs> one situation i had recently and i always find it amusing when i get agitated about service because i teach customer <laughs> service <laughs> yeah and i teach i teach people i teach people how to give good service and i teach them how to how to manage aggression so when i find myself getting agitated and aggressive about service right. I, I it's kind of like one of those sort of self-realization moments that you, you're still a monkey but yes. um i i remember i was on a, a late night flight uh, heading back home after I don't even know what, doing some sort of business. And uh, I was on a budget airline, uh, Jetstar, for any Australians that are listening. But uh, <laughs> I, was, I, was on, I was on Jetstar and uh, I was at the gate. I had carry-on only luggage. Um, and our, our luggage system works a little bit different here than it does in the US. But I had, uh, had carry-on only luggage. Uh, I was ready to, ready to board and they pulled us aside and they uh, wanted to weigh all the carry-on. Right. And, uh, we're just about to board. So if, you, if your carry-on is too heavy, you don't really have many options. You can't run back and check it. It's not going to happen. Right. So uh, my carry-on was uh, what, uh, one and a half kilos, so three three pounds too heavy. Uh, right. Past the limit, right. 
So I'd flown into the city on a different airline that had a 14 kilo limit for right. carry on. And I was flowing on a different airline, which had a seven kilo limit. So I, um, I queried that, and considering the airlines are actually owned by the same company, uh, <laughs> I queried that. I'm like, well, why, why, is, why is Qantas allowed right. me to have 14 kilos and carry on, and you only allow me to have seven? Uh, and she said, oh, it's about safety. I said, well, do Qantas employ stronger staff? Right. Like, what, what's, what's the issue? <laughs> why, why, is it, why is there such a dramatic difference? She goes, oh, no, it's definitely about safety. Right. And I said, well, so what's it going to cost me for this extra one and a half kilos? And she said, it's going to cost $70. I was like, $70 for, like, and I don't have any options. There's nothing in my yes. bag that, like, uh, other well, than they, surrendering they know my you haven't got any options. Exactly, exactly. So I, I, I know, look, I know 100% that it's about revenue. It's about yeah. Yeah, trapping me there so that I, I end up giving them money, which I did because I didn't have any other options. Yep. Uh, but um, the fact that she insisted it was about safety actually irritated me further because right. I was like, I know it's not about safety because you've got the exact same staff working on the other airline who, right. <laughs> who are saying that it's okay for this thing to be twice as heavy as it is. Um, so the, the the learning from that other than first, the, the first learning for me was yeah, get back in your box. You're, you're taking out anger on someone who's just right. repeating a script they've been told to, to say. Yeah. But the other thing is don't make shit up. I mean, if, if you yes. don't tell someone it's about safety, considering oh, I'm an OH&S consultant, so I, I know full right. well it's not about safety. And it actually irritated me more that I, was, I felt like I was being lied to as well as extorted for money. So, it, um, it, it, it's, yeah. It's an indefensible position. I'd rather, you know, I'd actually rather her say, look, I'm not sure, but it is our policy. Because then I wouldn't have been angry at right. her because she wouldn't have been lying, at me, lying to me. Right. Um, and obviously she was just going through the script she's been told, you know, it's about safety because then no one argues with you, except if they know then it's not about safety and they're trying to figure out what the actual issue is or at least get you to admit that you're just trying to extort money from me because, you know, you can't. And I think that that's the problem. It's like if you're sending your employees out to bat with a position which is indefensible, which somebody could pick apart, you kind of are putting them at risk um, where, you know, there are, one of the things, you know, um, that, that I've often sort of seen people use is it's about insurance. And when you say it's about insurance, insurance is such a complex game that you kind of can't argue. So if it was a case of like, I'm very sorry, but, you know, we're not insured for uh, objects greater than seven kilograms. That you can, can't argue with. We're acknowledging that it's a monetary thing, which... Hopefully, you're also acknowledging by flying on a budget airline that I would expect them maybe a lower level of insurance uh, on something such as <laughs> luggage. You know, not on safety uh, overall. Uh, um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go out there and play. Uh, yeah, Gav, if you're listening, uh, that's Gav's policy that I have to fly budget. Just uh, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so I might, I might I might actually I might actually edit that out, but uh, yeah, this is just because we both know him, I thought I'd throw it out there. Uh, but uh, yeah, absolutely. I think some of, you throw so you throw people out there with, like I said, an indefensible position, and and they just keep. Especially, I mean, I could tell once I started. I mean, I wasn't aggressive about the arguing, but I could probably. Yeah, she yeah. she no doubt knew that I was not pleased about it. But granted, she was going to have that conversation with another twenty or thirty people on that flight. Right. That it's it's nine o'clock at night. Everyone wants to get home. They yes. they want it to be over with. And now you're going to tell me that I have to pay you extra money as well. Yeah. Um, she was in a really bad spot 
uh, there's, she was going to deal with continual conflict over and over. And there actually was a guy that uh, ended up being arrested on the flight. And that all started with that particular interaction because he had to pay extra for his right. luggage. And uh, when he got on the plane, he was then agitated and started picking a fight with someone else who had a really large bag that he didn't think had been <laughs> charged extra. <laughs> and then it ended up escalating where he got, he got talked down to by a, by a flight attendant. Right. This is actually a good case study because the 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 mother hen flight attendant came over and put a put a finger in his face and told him to behave himself, right. and uh, and then it just went further and further. And I started thinking I was going to end up landing in a different airport so we could get dragged off right. the plane. But uh, thankfully, we made it back to we made it back to Melbourne before they arrested him, which was yeah at least good for the rest of us. But uh, right. anyway, but I think like I said, throwing people out there with a script that's faulty um, just sets them up for panic and uh and the staff member i was dealing with she i could tell on her face she started to panic because she didn't have anywhere else to go right and she didn't didn't have another option to start explaining to me and she wasn't able to think on her feet and explain it and then thankfully i was able to realize yeah you're being a bit of a dick just calm uh and i I was able to disengage but um yeah it's a it's a it's a tough situation for her to be in the company holds a great deal of responsibility because you know somewhere along the line that they've taken a decision that, you know, they're going to charge people like the $70 uh, fee for overweight luggage, knowing that it's going to make people more aggressive and angry and putting the staff in a difficult position. But they've decided in the revenue model that that's kind of a risk that they're willing to take. Um, And I think that's where, you know, without going into sort of the, uh, you know, the, the the facelessness of big business. Um, but I think there's often cases where it's easier, it's cheaper to just send somebody out there with a terrible script than actually train them properly how to deal with them or to try and find a more equitable means of charging for overweight uh, luggage. Yeah, yeah. It's And you're right. I mean, it, it always comes down to dollars and cents. And it, it is interesting from a risk management point of view that um, the the revenue that it obviously comes in from from those sort of charges must be greater than the insurance cost of having staff assaulted yes. or <laughs> a stress yes. leave. How well that's, that's uh, calculated is hard to say, but um, it it actually opens up another door of conversation. One of the things that that I've found here, and I uh, I know it's echoed in the UK, and I assume probably in the US as well, is a reluctance to train staff. Uh, to deal with aggression in the fear that they'll deal with it wrong or they'll use the skills incorrectly and create greater liability issues. So it's almost like it's it's cheaper. So, for example, healthcare, we'll just go back to healthcare because it's a, yep. it is an industry that gets a lot of attention from aggression management point of view. Um, some organisations don't provide any physical self-defence training whatsoever, uh, even for staff in high-risk areas like emergency departments or mental yep. health or whatever, uh, because they're it's actually cheaper for them to pay the work cover or the insurance on an injury than it is to pay for the potential injury of them getting hurt in the training uh, or the potential PR issue of a, a badly executed restraint or yeah, a patient being injured and the, the lawsuit yeah. that comes after that. It's almost like the, it's like the, the fight club scenario from the, from the, uh, the, the very start right. of the movie with it. The cost of, if the cost of the recall is greater than the cost of the settlement of the lawsuit, then yeah. the, video, the vehicle doesn't get recalled. Um, and that, that's something that can be frustrating when you look at it simplistically, black and white, should people be trained to deal with aggression? Yes or no. But it all comes down to dollars and cents. And we're talking about workplace violence 
it, we have to consider that this ha- this has to be financially viable. I, I think there's a step that even goes before that. Uh, I think that's absolutely spot on uh, as a piece of analysis. One of the things uh, we found with uh, certain uh, industries and certain companies within certain industries is there's a reluctance to actually admit there's a problem or there's a potential for a problem um, for fear that this opens a door up. So that if you offer training to somebody to say like, okay, we recognize that, you know, customers uh, on Black Friday, you know, are likely or there's a good likelihood to get physically aggressive and violent with one of the staff members. If we acknowledge that, there's a sort of feeling that you're, the company is deliberately putting this person at risk um, rather than sort of turning around and going like, yes, we recognize that certain jobs, occupations, certain industries have higher risks than others, uh, and therefore training should be provided to mitigate those risks. Um, but one of the things we run up here um, is, is a lot of that kind of denial, denial that there is a potential for the problem, because by sort of acknowledging it, you're opening up the potential gate for a lawsuit should something happen. Yeah, and, and to be honest, the, the research proposal, the research project that I mentioned earlier, um, part one of the goals for that is to establish this is the reality and and have yes. this backed by industry and by academic, uh, you know, a strong academic position that this is the current state of affairs. You can no longer plead ignorance about this. Yes. You know, and that's that's part of what we're doing. I mean, some organisations are more progressive than others, but if we can have a uh, yeah a objective uh, analysis to say, okay, you know what, you can't that 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 card's now off the table. You can't yes. plead ignorance because this has been established, and this is what best practice looks like. You're aware of what best practice looks like. You're either going to comply or not. Uh, and yeah. I think that's uh, unfortunately we're at a point where we have to do that to try and to try and help people, but. Um, yeah, for, for sure. I think it, acknowledging the problem is sometimes um, yeah, it's sometimes harder than than it seems because even if yes. they're aware of the problem publicly, acknowledging it's a different thing, uh, especially Absolutely. in the age of litigation. So, yeah, very interesting, right? Um, so just to just to progress the conversation because I know you've got to teach classes in the in yep. the nearish uh, nearish future. So. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about higher integration. So we've talked a little bit about verbal and and. Uh, uh, and uh, sort of spontaneous aggression over yeah, dissatisfied yeah. service and so on. Let's talk about the customer who has a grudge and is coming back. Um, let's let's just, let's just dive in right into the um, the active arm defender or active shooter yeah. or the the it, we, we doesn't it doesn't have to be a firearm. It could, it could be someone right. who comes back with a with a, a weapon of any sort. Yes. Um, you know, in, in Australia, I don't know if it's hit the international media yet. We just had a. Uh, attempted mass stabbing in Sydney yesterday. Yes, I saw uh, that. Yeah, which is a uh, look a fascinating case study in uh, in improvised weapons. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the video, but uh, no, the 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 uh, offender who is um, currently trying to ascertain whether it was a terror related incident or not, but um, the offender uh, stabbed uh, two women uh, and then a group of about six to eight men started chasing him and they chased him through the city. And somehow or other, there was a news camera there that was also chasing him, which uh, <laughs> is convenient. I mean, someone witnessed that they saw a guy with a, with a news camera on his shoulder running down the street after a guy holding a knife and they thought they were filming a TV show. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but but um, the, the, uh, there happened to be a, uh, a fire crew 
uh, that gave chase, and there's a there's a guy chasing him with an axe in his hand because he's grabbed a <laughs> grabbed an axe. Yeah, off. there we go. And uh, and then the the group end up catching up with him, and uh, there's there's some great footage. I mean, I, I don't want to I don't want to glorify this because obviously a, a lady lost her life, and there's another one who's been seriously injured, but. Uh, he's pinned down under outdoor furniture. So they, they've grabbed cafe furniture and, and put yep. the, the chairs on top of him Brilliant. and sat on top of the chairs and someone's got a milk crate and put on top of his head and they're standing on the milk crate. And <laughs> he's, he's well and truly restrained with outdoor furniture nice. and weapons of opportunity, which as a, as a fellow Krav Maga instructor, that, uh, that makes my heart warm. That, yeah. that um, Firstly, that people acted and, and, and chased him and, and uh, he was, I mean, you can hear in the video he's saying, "Shoot me, shoot me, shoot me." Yeah, he was he was attempting to get suicide by cop, um, yeah. and the only well, reason he the only reason he wasn't killed is that the, the bystanders got there before the police did, and none none of the bystanders carry right. a weapon here. So, and again, that's a characteristic of uh, many mass killings that suicidal ideation, um, and and I think it, there's so many things that come out of stories like that that you know how if people work as a team together, um, kind of spirits as it were get buoyed and there's more confidence um the ability that we have to improvise and use tools uh you know there's so much that comes out of that um but i i think it also shows that you know when the many as one solutions start to get implemented you actually start to see successes in these situations and and success might be judged by a limited number of fatalities, not necessarily a complete elimination, but how many more people would have been stabbed and killed had not that group kind of put pressure on him and gave chase. Yeah, and actually something else I found interesting was that, uh, I mean, he was he was screaming, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. So I mean, if if the police had been there, I'm... I would say ninety percent sure that he would have he would have rushed them with the knife to get shot. Yes, uh, there was a guy. There was a there was a, <laughs> a a firefighter standing there with an axe in his hand, and he didn't rush the guy with the axe. So I think the the idea of being shot to death was a little bit more attractive than being hacked to right. death with an axe. So once he saw the axe, he actually he actually took off. <laughs> it's an interesting piece of psychology there that I think he is quite happy to be shot, but not so much to be to be killed right. with an axe. Well, so. one theoretically is over in an instance, and the other one is kind of a, a continued uh, sort of assault on you. Yeah, it's a, it certainly reconnected him back with his will to live, I think. Uh, yeah. So, it's a, yeah, sorry, I don't want to make light of that situation because it is very fresh, but it was one of the observations that I had was that, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe the police need to be carrying axes instead of firearms. I don't know. Right. But, um, uh, so look, let's let's talk about active shooter uh, preparedness uh, just briefly. Uh, what what you uh, offer in terms of in terms of training and, and advice for organisations that are trying to be prepared for the possibility of an active shooter situation? Uh, I think a lot of a lot of the emphasis we put on is that uh, preparation and prevention. Um, oftentimes, these individuals will actually start with a letter writing campaign, an email campaign. Uh, some form of drawing attention to the injustice that they've, uh, you know, feel that's uh, been meted out to them by the organization. Um, so th there's often somewhere along the lines, uh, some communication of violent intent before the violent intent actually occurs. Obviously, you do get sort of, as it were, the person who returns to the car after a heated exchange comes back with their firearm. Um, and basically starts a spree. 
but you'll often find that that has a uh, there's a much longer history to that that this is just the uh, tipping point you know the incident which is a triggering event um so normally uh when you have these sort of like campaigns against i, I don't know a walmart or something like that um that there are warning signs out there there are normally some sort of threats have been made but often they're not taken seriously uh there's one company that we work for which uh obviously i'm not gonna mention their name due to non-disclosure agreements um but one of they hire a lot of uh temporary workers when they're building warehouses and then they have to let them go and they often receive a large number uh obviously these are employees of kind of email campaigns sort of stating injustices and what the company needs to do to make it right. Uh, and you'll often find with uh, customers of retailers um, who have felt there's been injustice uh, against them will engage in these types of campaigns. So part of the training is to teach management to recognize when these are serious uh, or when they're kind of hollow. Um, and I don't mean that necessarily on the first one, you sort of put it in the yeah, not to be taken seriously bin. Um, but it's sometimes trying at the very early stages to identify if there is a customer out there who has harmful intent against the organization. So that's really the, the, the first step uh, that we do. Um, when you're dealing with uh, somebody actually coming into the, you know, uh, workplace which is open to the public, such as a, a retail uh, outlet. Um, now it gets very difficult. It's actually, I would say, more difficult uh, than in office environments, which tend to be more densely populated with employees who you can potentially train. Uh, in a retail uh, situation, you might have, let's say, 20 uh, staff members who have undergone uh, such training on how to physically deal with a shooter or a killer but find that they're sort of like sparsely populated throughout a large sort of footage of a retail space. Um, so a lot of it will determine like when we're dealing with restaurants, for example, we have to teach slightly different solutions to when we're dealing with those sort of large retail uh, outlets. I'm not sure if that fully answers your question or whether you want to kind of delve deeper in and sort of direct it somewhere. Yeah, no, that, that's a that's really valid. Um, it's... Managing an incident like that is so difficult when you have such a high percentage of people around you being untrained and panicking. And and yes, I mean the, a lot of active shooter training, uh, quite rightly based on the you know, based on the statistics, uh, is essentially for an office based environment where right. everybody there has had the basic training, or at least the high percentage have had the basic training. So everyone's going to act in a way that you. Hopefully, hopefully will act in a way that they've been trained to do so. But when you start throwing in a public place where you now have a couple of thousand of members of the public who are all going to act in different ways, who have had no training whatsoever, and you're trying to keep them safe and your staff safe and try to resolve the issue and try to alert law enforcement and try to coordinate it, yes. <laughs> an evacuation or a lockdown, uh, that's incredibly difficult. Um, actually, just recently, I uh, was fortunate enough to be at a, an industry breakfast talking about... Uh, uh the Christchurch uh massacre yes and uh they had a young girl sorry I shouldn't say young girl they had a uh had a lady there who was the center manager for a uh for a large shopping center which was 700 meters away from where the massacre took place 
Yep. And this is a, this is the largest public gathering space in Christchurch. So uh, her shopping centre is full, and they're receiving word that there is an active shooter uh, on the loose, um, very close by. And this is this is New Zealand. This isn't. A right. daily occurrence. Uh, uh, in fact, there's you know, obviously there's never been one like that in New Zealand right. previously. So, um, and she is a twenty-something-year-old uh, retail centre manager, and she's trying to coordinate. How do I get all these shops to close? What do What do we yeah. do? Do we Do we evacuate? Do we lock down? Do we um, yeah, how do I how do I manage all my uh, all my staff? Uh, how, how do I manage all the all the customers? Uh, and they're getting obviously law enforcement are scrambling to figure out what's happening as well. So right. the first message they get is evacuate. They start trying to do an evacuation, and then halfway through the evacuation, they get another call saying no lockdown, lockdown, right. bring everyone back in and lock lock everyone inside. And then halfway through that, they get another call saying no, you need to evacuate. So the chaos that causes, oh. and then of course every single staff member and every person who. Yeah, as soon as the sirens start going off, and there's a moment, people will grab their phones and jump on social media. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember watching this live. Uh, the initial reports were there were multiple shooters in multiple locations. There was car bombs. There was all the all this stuff that was coming out on social media and uh, and even some news sites that indicated that this was a much more like a Bataclan theater type uh, situation where we you actually had multiple crime scenes and it wasn't the case. Uh, but that was the perception at the time that was that was the information right. that's coming out especially on social media so you are now getting messaging that's not controlled by the authorities that's not verified or validated and people reacting to the information they're seeing on their facebook feed as opposed to the instructions of uh the people who are actually trying to coordinate the evacuation or the lockdowns so it really really interesting um to hear her take on on how they manage that uh and and what it actually came down to for them their key learning out of that was just communication was it was having more centralized communication? I think it's also recognizing, and, and this is part of the confusion, that often active shooter instances get kind of elevated to terrorist uh, instances. So when we teach active shooter, we teach that there are three basic assumptions that you work to. And again, these are assumptions, so there will be occasions where they're wrong. But in around 99.9% of cases, they are safe assumptions to make. Uh, one of them is that the shooter is acting alone. If you actually look for the statistics of uh, active shooter instances, most of the time the shooter is alone. Um, and this is an, a good uh, assumption to kind of work from, because if you have knowledge of where the shooter is, then that can determine now your evacuation policy uh, or your lockdown policy, which one am I going to implement? Um, we also teach that the shooter hasn't altered the environment, which is, again, something that often gets uh, always reported on at the time and blown out that they set bombs here, they set bombs there. You know, that's not really a standard active shooter uh, incident. Uh, and the other one we teach, which is, and this is more practically when you're actually dealing with them, is that the active shooter has multiple weapons. So although weapon disarming is nice from a technical point of view, you're better off trying to shut the shooter down, i.e. I'm not necessarily saying kill them, um, but render them unconscious. Um, or physically disable them so they're no longer able to continue the spree. I think a lot of the communication uh, confusion comes around when people sort of move away from those assumptions and start adding in uh, unsubstantiated pieces of information, like he set up a car bomb at the end of the road. That's not standard in an active shooter situation. 
And I know it can be hard to determine what's actually happening in the moment. Um, but I think a lot of the time we overcomplicate what are basically very uh, simple situations by sort of imagining too much and reading uh, insignificant uh, details to be highly significant. And so I think if we always have, like in an active shooter instance, um, some very basic assumptions to work to and filter information through those assumptions, we can come up with a much more uh, actionable, um, definable uh, plan. Yeah, absolutely, mate. All right, I, I'm very conscious of your time because I, I know you're you're on a tight schedule. So we we might leave it there, mate. Um, just for uh, for anyone who wants to know more about you, where where can they go to to buy your books, read your blog, book you for talking, consulting, all the all the crazy stuff you do? Where, where can I where can I send them? So they can read my blog at kramagarblog.com. So just as it reads kramagarblog.com. Uh, I have a personal website. There's not a lot of information on, but it's a good way to get in contact with me, which is gushonbenkeren.com. So kind of simple. Um, and again, most of our services are listed at bostonkradmagar.com. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time, mate. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk. And uh, oh, great to uh, talk to you, Joe. Yeah, we can we can uh, no no doubt do it again in the future. Again, uh, it's it's always a pleasure to collaborate with you. Uh, and uh, I will be getting your your input as well on this on this research because I think uh, it'll be it'll be great to uh, to pick your brain about it as well. Uh, mate, thank you. Thank you again, and uh, I hope you go and enjoy teaching your classes, and uh, we'll talk to you again next time. Talk to you soon. Take care, Joe. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, it's always a ton of fun talking to Gershon Ben Karen, my brother from another mother via Scotland and Boston. Uh, I had a great time talking to him. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. And just a reminder, head on over to patreon.com slash managingviolence if you'd like to chip in and support the show. And also leave us a review on iTunes. If you leave us a five-star review and write a few words, send me a screenshot of your review to joe at joesaunders.com.au and I'll send you a free PDF first version of Bouncer Stories, my first book. That will be free. All you got to do is leave us a review. That's it for this week. As our great friend of the show, Professor Matt Larson says, always be the warrior in the room. Talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Managing Violence podcast. For more information, to view previous episodes, or to read blogs, articles, and so much more, please check out my website at www.josaunders.com.au www.josaunders.com.au Thank you. Talk to you next time.